Well, good morning. Um, my name's Robin Davis, not Adrian Rowett, as you might be expecting, as it says on the, uh, the church diary. I think Adrian's still recovering from his 100th outing with uh, street pastors uh, this weekend, so uh, um, I was meant to chair last week, that's why I'm chairing this week. So good morning again, I welcome you all here in church, and for those who are watching us on the stream, we're welcome also. Uh, please stay for tea and coffee and fellowship after the service. And for those of you who have little ones, there is, as you know, a, a, a creche if you need a quiet space with them. This is the third Sunday in Advent, and our pastor, Duncan, will be continuing the Advent series on the birth of Jesus Christ. He will be preaching from Matthew chapter 2 with the title of Long Expected Jesus. The reading from Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophets, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord. Well, let me add to Robin's welcome, um, and particularly if we haven't met, my name is Duncan, and I serve as pastor of the church here, and it's a real privilege to come and to bring God's words to us. So, if you have a Bible, turn back with us to those verses that Adele read in Matthew chapter 2, and they are also printed in the diary that hopefully you received on the way in as we come to look at these verses a little more closely. Um, it's a difficult adjustment 
when winter comes, your children tell you that they don't want to wear a coat, don't need to wear a coat, even though it's snowing. And what do you do? You, you warn them. You say, well, if you don't wear the coat, you'll be freezing and you'll, you'll probably get the cold. Well, they don't take the coat. They were freezing and they did get the cold. Let me give you another scenario. Imagine that your not so practically gifted husband tells you that he can fix the problem with the electrics in the house. And you tell him, look, you should really just get someone in. Someone who knows what they're doing, otherwise you might just make things worse. Well, he tried anyway, and he did make things worse, and he had to get someone in to fix it. Or imagine that your friend tells you that they're entering into a relationship with the least trustworthy and and the most selfish guy that you know, and you pluck up the courage to say, don't do it. You need someone who is loving and stable and reliable. Well, she presses on anyway, and it ends in disaster. Uh, These three scenarios all have something in common. Um, Someone's unwilling to listen to what proved to be wise advice. But here's the thing I want you to see that they have in common. If you were the one who was ignored, there's one thing and one thing only that you are dying to say to that person. What is it? I told you so. And sometimes we're even humble enough to say, well, look, I hate to say I told you so. (laughs) But I want to say that I told you so is actually only annoying when we didn't listen to wise advice. When we do listen to wise counsel, it's actually hugely comforting to look back and to say, you know, that's just what we thought would happen, isn't it? I'm so glad that I didn't interfere with the electrics in the house. And I want to say that 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 is, something of that is the tone that we must understand that Matthew is deploying in telling us the story of Jesus' birth in the way that he does. Because in some ways, you could read it as a great big, I told you so, from God to us. You read through Matthew 1 and Matthew 2, and you've got to be struck by the number of times that Matthew says, well, all of this took place just as we had been told it would be. And even in those verses that were read for us, he specifically says these things happened, and they were a fulfillment of something that was said before. He says that, he uses those kind of words in verse 15, verse 17, verse 23. Again and again, he's saying, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. But this is not to be a a rebuke. Actually, it's to be for our encouragement to say, isn't this exactly how God said this would pan out? But it's how we respond to this message, how we respond to this wisdom that comes to us from the pages of Scripture that will determine whether it's actually a hugely irritating and, in fact, disastrous I told you so, or whether it's a great comfort of saying, am I so glad I listened? All of these details, Matthew says, about the birth of Jesus were lying in the pages of God's Word 
And Matthew shows us that here finally has come the long-expected Jesus. Now, if you have read the Bible for any length of time, you will at least be aware that there are parts of the Old Testament that explicitly talk about the coming Savior. And Matthew, who wrote this gospel, is very clear in his own mind that that no one should have been caught off guard by Jesus' coming. So, if you were with us last week, we saw that the wise men, who we think about at this time of year, these non-Jewish people from way out in the East, who naturally speaking, we would think they were ignorant, didn't understand these things, that they were able to read the signs and know that Jesus had been born. They saw His star, and they followed it to Jerusalem. And again and again, Matthew shows us that the details of Jesus' birth were foretold. So, we've already seen the virgin conception, His birth in Bethlehem. And here again in our verses, quotations from the book of Hosea, the book of Jeremiah, but Matthew understands that actually the sense of fulfillment that comes with Jesus goes even deeper than just saying, well, there's this text and this text and this text. It's more than just a handful of prophetic verses. Matthew shows us in these verses that Jesus is fulfilling His nation's destiny. More than just fulfilling a handful of verses, Jesus is fulfilling His nation's destiny. And we see this in Matthew's understanding of the significance of Jesus' journey to Egypt. So, God warns Joseph. This is the second time the angel of the Lord has appeared to Joseph in a dream and warns him that Herod, driven by deep insecurity in his own reign, will seek to destroy Jesus. And so, in the middle of the night, his family heads for Egypt to find shelter from danger. And you see what Matthew says in verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Those words come from Hosea chapter 11. But here's the thing, if you were to go back and to read those verses, you would find that Hosea is not actually speaking about something that would happen. He's not saying, I will send my son, I will send my servant, and I will call him out of Egypt. That's not at all what it says in Hosea. Hosea is actually talking about something that had already happened. He's talking about something that had happened to the nation of Israel. So, God says through Hosea, listen to this, He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's what it says in the original. And many have then pondered, well, does Matthew not know how to read things in context? Is he being a bit fast and loose with the prophecies of the Old Testament? Not at all. In fact, he's showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of more than just a few proof texts. He is the fulfillment of all of Israel's history. You see, 1,500 years prior to these events in Matthew's gospel, one described as God's firstborn son, sheltered in Egypt. There, a wicked ruler tried to destroy that firstborn son by drowning babies in the River Nile. 
And out of Egypt, God led them to be his people. That's the story of Israel in Egypt in the book of Exodus. And it foreshadows exactly what we see happening in the life of Christ here in Matthew chapter 2. But you see, here's the thing. When Israel came out of Egypt, they failed to be God's people. They grumbled against God, and they were unfaithful in the wilderness. But Jesus is the opposite. Matthew sees in Jesus significant parallels with what God has done with Israel. Jesus, from here, the next thing he's going to do is pass through the waters, be baptized. He will then be led out into the wilderness where he'll be tested. But he will not grumble and be found unfaithful. He is faithful Israel. He will then climb a mountain to deliver the law, much like God did in Exodus 19 and 20. And we're to see that where Israel was unfaithful, Jesus is faithful and true to God. Jesus is fulfilling his nation's destiny. All that Israel was called to be in the Old Testament and failed to live up to, Jesus is perfectly. The Old Testament is the story of God's plan to redeem human beings and how it unfolds in the history of the world. And Matthew wants us to see that it's all leading up to this, to the coming of the true Israel, the true King, the true Son, the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew's saying to us, have confidence He's giving us a lens through which to read the Old Testament. Because in so many ways, the Old Testament is the repeated story of human failure. And it seems as you keep reading on chapter after chapter that human weakness is the thing that will keep setting back the prospects of sinners ever being right with God. But here's the lens that Matthew gives us. It's as if he says, wherever you read in the Old Testament of some failure, of something that hinders us from getting to God, let that lead you to Jesus who has come and who perfectly fulfills all of what we could not do. So when you read in the Old Testament of imperfect kings, let that lead you here to the true king, the perfect king. When you read of imperfect priests, Let that lead you to this Jesus who will represent you as a true priest before God. When you read of imperfect sacrifices, let that lead you to Jesus who is the perfect sacrifice that does and can once and for all take away sins forever. When you read of imperfect men and women and how far short they fell of God, let that lead you to the perfect man who has come to live a perfect life in your place. Well, Matthew really is teeing us up here to say, have confidence in this Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all of redemptive history. It all finds its completion in Him. And that then leads us into the darkest corner of this story. Because just as Pharaoh in Egypt had been ready to see babies murdered to make him feel more secure. So too we see Herod here, who will stop at nothing 
to eliminate any threat to his reign. Herod realizes that the wise men who he'd encountered earlier in chapter 2 are not coming back. They're not going to reveal to him where the, the king of the Jews is. He's furious. And so he brings a great big sledgehammer to accomplish his, his wretched deed and pronounces, having done the maths of when the, the wise men turned up and when they said they had seen the star, that this, this baby must be no more than two by now. So, just to be sure, kill all the male children in Bethlehem who are two years or under. It's hard for us to take in and we did touch on this a little bit last week, but actually this is utterly in keeping with the kind of man that King Herod was. Here he is coming towards the end of his reign, and he was marked out by deep, deep insecurity. This is the man who, when he feared there was a plot to overthrow him, had his wife and his three sons and his mother-in-law and his brother-in-law all murdered this is the man who, when he found a conspiracy against him, ordered the execution of ten men, and for good measure had all their families killed too. For Herod, life was utterly dispensable if it gets in the way of his ambitions. And so actually what Matthew records here, even though we have no other evidence to back it up, it is entirely in keeping with what we know of this man he would order the callous murder of infants in Bethlehem. And it's hard for us to take in, but actually some of those other vengeances that I mentioned, well, actually compared to those, this is not his most bloody intervention. Bethlehem was a very small place, and the best estimates seem to suggest that the number of infants killed was likely not more than 20, but what a thing to do. And here's the thing I've, that's, that's very hard for us to take in, is that why did he do that? He killed those infants in order to try and destroy the one whom he believed was God's Messiah. I mean, let that sink in. It wasn't because he didn't believe this was the true king of the Jews. He believed this may well be. This great hope that all of Scripture was pointing to, the coming of the true anointed of God. And here, in a sense, that's met with belief, but murderous belief. Herod tries to kill Jesus because he believes he may well be the Christ. I mean, what on earth could drive someone to do such a thing, to respond to Jesus in that kind of way? I mean, this is the time of year where we're reminded, aren't we, that the, the coming of Jesus is all about peace and goodwill on earth. Peace on earth and goodwill to men, right? And while Jesus is the fulfiller of Israel's destiny, so too Herod here stands in a long line of those who have sought to do the devil's work of destroying humanity, and particularly destroying God's plan of redemption for humanity. Human beings are that part of creation that were uniquely made in God's image. 
And so it's entirely uh, logical that Satan, the devil, God's enemy, would seek to attack the thing that bears the image of God. And so whether as you read through history, the, the serpent in the Garden of Eden, Pharaoh in Egypt, Haman in Persia, their goal was to exterminate, exterminate the hope of redemption, to specifically exterminate the line of Abraham from which the promised Redeemer would come. It is the devil's work to destroy the plan to rescue humanity. And here we come in Matthew 2, and Herod stands in that same line with that same mission that comes from the evil one himself. And it highlights to us just how disordered the desires of human beings can be. Knowing that the hope of Israel has come, Herod far preferred to hold on to what power he imagined he had. He would prefer to remain at odds with his Creator so that he would not have to give up anything that he held in this life. How tragic. But that is what describes a great many of us even today. The Bible says that all unbelievers do this to some extent. The evidence of God, the Creator, and the supreme authority over us is, is all around us in creation. And by nature, our fallen nature chooses to suppress that evidence, to resist any claim that God might have upon our lives. And you read through the Gospels, you find this wasn't the last effort to kill Jesus. The Gospels tell us that several times a, a crowd would try to seize him. Uh, once a crowd tried to throw him off a cliff. And of course, eventually the religious authorities got their way. And he was tortured and executed on a Roman cross. And yet it was this rejection and persecution that God was using to bring about the salvation of the world. And we must be under no illusion, the desire to destroy Jesus is alive and well. When Saul of Tarsus made it his mission to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, he encountered the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus said to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, uh, well, I mean, Saul was attacking Christians, he wasn't attacking Jesus per se. But such is this oneness between Jesus and his people that an attack on them is an attack on him. And this is exactly how people seek to be rid of Jesus today still. And maybe you even see it in your own experience. I mean, think of it like this. Share your opinion on, on clothes, on movies, on music, on cars, books, holidays, um, veganism and vegetarianism, etc., etc., etc. No one gets offended, not usually. People are happy to hear your views and have a robust discussion and still be friends at the end of it. But tell them that you believe in Jesus and believe the Bible is the authoritative Word of God. Ooh. It's not uncommon for that to draw a different reaction not one that says, oh, I'm really interested to hear that. Why, why, why do you think that? Sometimes that happens, but often not. 
it's fairly common for someone to then think very differently of you because they know this about you now. Not uncommon for people to actually hate someone because they, they claim to be a follower of Jesus and everything that it represents. And though we might know that a little bit here, around the world there are literally hundreds of millions of Christians who know this in a far more severe way, whose jobs are threatened, whose liberty is threatened, whose families are threatened, and whose lives are threatened. And for what? What is this great threat that they pose to the nations that they're in? They're followers of Jesus. Well, Jesus says the reason why this happens is because of the Christian's likeness to him. Listen to what he says in John 15. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It is our likeness to Jesus that draws the same response that we see people responded to Jesus with. And as we see Herod brings here, oh, what sorrow Herod brings to the little town of Bethlehem. We don't often get to this part of the story. It's funny, isn't it, how in our, in our carols and our Christmas cards, we have this wonderfully sentimental view of the little town of Bethlehem, don't we? What must it have been in Bethlehem at this point? I don't know, 18 months or more after the birth of Christ? Well, here we have the second scripture quoted from the prophet Jeremiah. It's quoted in verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is taken from Jeremiah chapter 31, where these words come from God. But actually in the very next verse, God answers those mothers who weep. I wonder if Matthew wants us to understand this. Listen to the very next line in that chapter. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord and your children shall come back to their own country. There is weeping here. It is the fulfillment of, of what the prophets had spoken, but it is the reminder that when we trust in the Lord, tears, even the bitterest of tears, are shed in hope. There are no words that would describe how deeply Bethlehem grieved. And yet born into her midst was the only hope of the world. Like we would sing, yet in your dark streets 
shineth the everlasting light. Just like the psalmist says, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And it's the hard lesson to learn, but it is the way of Christian hope. The hope that we have in Jesus is real. He really has come to give us a hope and a future. He has secured that by His perfect life, by His sin-atoning death, by His resurrection from the dead, by His ascension into heaven, and all of that is the great assurance that that will all be ours with Him. That's where we're heading. The hope in Jesus is real, but the road that we travel to get there is one where we can expect to shed many tears, and not least of all, because Jesus is hated by the enemy. That's what Matthew's showing us, isn't it? Again, here Jesus, the fulfillment of all of history, is the one who is consistently hated by the enemy. Well, one more point as we draw this to a close. There's um, an increasing tendency… Let me give you this little insight into my world. There's an increasing tendency in people who are in Christian ministry to think that the mark of how, how gifted they are or how capable they are is by measuring how big a following they have. Um, and there's something that is a little bit unsettling, actually, about um, church pastors whose long-term pursuit is more about getting a bigger platform. And I've, I've actually seen people specifically say that's what they think they're ready for, in inverted commas. And it's so troubling because it's actually the opposite of the pattern that the Lord Jesus lays down for how we should be, how we should think about leadership in a local church and so on. And it's the opposite of what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ Himself. And here we see this even from the earliest of years. Matthew tells us that Joseph is again for the third time visited by an angel of the Lord, verse 19, who tells him that it's safe now to return. But Joseph understands that it's, it's safe, but it's not, it's not safe everywhere. If he was to go back to Bethlehem in Judea, it would be to come under the reign of Archelaus, one of Herod's sons. And well, Joseph knows what kind of man Archelaus is. The history books tell us he had a a reign that was marked by similar kind of bloodshed to his father. And so, rather than settle in Judea, they head back to Galilee in the north of the country, to a small village called Nazareth. And as far as Matthew's gospel is concerned, this is a retreat into the shadows. It's, It's as if they go off into the sunset and nobody sees or hears from them again for almost 30 years. I mean, that's how big the gap is between the end of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3 in Matthew's gospel. Off Jesus goes into the shadows, not to be heard of or seen again for decades. Here we see um, Jesus who is fulfilling a nation's destiny, who is hated by the enemy, is now here hidden in obscurity. Jesus is hidden in obscurity. And that, 
seems to be Matthew's point here, this settling down in Nazareth. Matthew tells us that that is a fulfillment of the prophets. You see that in verse 23, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I could not take you to any chapter and verse in the Old Testament that actually even mentions the village of Nazareth. So, what's going on here? Why does Matthew say this is a fulfillment of the prophets, that he'd be called a Nazarene, a resident of Nazareth? That's all that means. Well, we get a sense of what it meant to come from Nazareth uh, over in John chapter 1. When Philip met Jesus, he rushes to find Nathanael to tell him about Jesus. Um, This is what it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. This This is what it was to be from Nazareth in the first century. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a non-place. Nothing significant had ever come out of Nazareth. And this is just the point that Matthew's making. Jesus will be called a Nazarene. He will be called insignificant. He will be despised and looked down upon. And you see, Matthew says this is Verse 23, what was spoken by the prophets, plural, not by the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Hosea or the prophet Isaiah, but the prophets. In other words, this isn't based on one word from one prophet. No, this is the tone of the prophets to tell us this is what to expect. Expect a Nazarene. Expect one who is lowly, one who is, 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 is regarded as nothing. Isaiah would say um, the, the promised servant will be like a root out of dry ground. Zechariah says he will be a shepherd whose sheep hate him. David in Psalm 22 would say he'll be scorned by everyone, despised by the people. And maybe most notably Isaiah in Isaiah 53 will speak of him being despised and rejected as he bears the sins of his people. Jesus is in obscurity. And this is something that we all must get over. You know, in the early church, you know what was the biggest hurdle to belief? It was the crucifixion. And it didn't matter what background you came from. When someone came and said, let me tell you about Jesus. He is God with us. And just outside Jerusalem, they nailed him to a cross. Whoa, 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 whoa. You said this was God with us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nailed to a cross. Whoa, whoa, whoa nailed to a cross. And the Jews would say, well, you know, don't you, that the Bible says um, anyone who's hanged on a tree is cursed by God? You know that it says that, don't you? 
How would we be expected to believe in this Jesus who is cursed? And from every other walk, they would say, well, don't you know that it is the most shameful thing that someone can endure? How are we supposed to worship a God who has been allowed to suffer this most shameful treatment? It was the, the, the lowness that was the biggest hurdle for people to get across. It was a stumbling block to Jews, and it was foolishness to Greeks. That's how Paul described it. And it's the same thing here. We're seeing the lowliness of Jesus and and instinctively, we don't like it. We want something that is outwardly impressive, something that we can be bold in sharing with our friends, don't we, where we can say, well, look at how, how magnificent this story is, and I mean, you'd be foolish to resist it. But actually, the message that we have is one who's a Nazarene, someone who comes from a non-place, the poorest of poor, the person who owned nothing, who achieved politically nothing and whose life was ended by crucifixion, the most shameful death available. And with that comes a sense of shame for us. This is what it is to know Jesus the Nazarene. It is not to be perturbed by those things, but to see that this is the way that He calls us. To embrace Him in all that He is because this is the only hope for humanity. One that strips us of all of our pride and says we would far rather, far rather be with Jesus in His obscurity than with Herod in all of his supposed power. And so these verses come to us today, and they say, here's everything that was said about Jesus, and here's how he has come. What will you do with this wisdom that comes to us? Will you believe in him and give your life to follow him? I mean, what else would be a reasonable response? And when it comes to the end of your life, you will have the great joy of looking back on it and saying, isn't this exactly how God said this would pan out? I'm so glad that I responded in faith to His call. Because friends, that's far better than coming to the end of life and actually having these words screaming in our ears, I told you so. I told you so. Look at the mess that you've made of it all because you rejected the Son of God. The long-expected Jesus has come, come for you. Will you turn to Him, however shadowy He might seem to the world, however despised He might be by the world, will you come to Him and give yourself to Him? Because actually, you have been given eyes to see that there in the dust of this world is the most precious thing God could ever give us, a Savior for you. Amen. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that even in these most darkest of verses in the Scriptures, that in the midst of it all shines the light of hope that only comes in Christ. And we pray you would give us eyes to see his beauty, his magnificence, your provision. Thank you for showing us how he is the fulfiller of all of Scripture. 
and indeed the fulfiller of all of history. Oh, Father, deepen our trust in him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.